This morning's reading starts in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 36. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbour shall take the shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb must be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute Forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native to the land.
you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the second passage comes from Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And, uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then we'll dive into these verses. Thinking of the father of the uh, sick boy in Mark 9 who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We do pray that this morning, Father, that as we look at these verses and they're going to be familiar for many of us this morning, that you would help us uh, to believe and to continue to believe them. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you consider the language used about Christians in the New Testament, it's absolutely staggering, isn't it? Because Christians aren't just described as believers or followers, but as children, as adopted. And of course, we famously pray in the Lord's Prayer about God, we call him our Father. See, Christians aren't just subjects of God, they're in the family of God. Now, how do we know that is the big question, though? Uh, And of course, the Bible tells us uh, that that is the case. But if we've been Christian for any length of time, we know to have that sense of being a child, to be in God's family, can be very hard to keep hold of. Uh, Life, of course, has its ups and downs, and it can feel like God is perhaps closer or more distant at different stages. And we can struggle sometimes to remember that we are truly God's family, that he is our father, that we are his child. Uh, Part of that difficulty, I think, is that that idea seems so intangible to us. I mean, I know I'm a child of my father, Bob Phillips. Uh, Yes, he has the same name as me. Uh, Because it says on my birth certificate, and I look like my father. Uh, Some people say unfortunately, but uh, if I agree with them, I'm kind of bringing (laughs) that same opinion on myself. See, it's much more tangible when I think of my earthly father, but when we become a believer, we don't get issued with a birth certificate from God, and in one sense, nothing really changes. We don't get a halo above our heads. We look very similar, very ordinary. And maybe even some of us, particularly during the isolation of this pandemic, have struggled to keep hold of that idea that I truly am a beloved child in God. Not that we don't believe the gospel, of course we do, but actually that subjective sense in which we are children of God can be far harder to keep hold of. Well, these chapters, uh, Exodus 11 to 13, are all about assuring us that we truly are God's children, helping us to have confidence that he is our father, that we are loved in him. Of course, this is the climax, isn't it, of the plagues, the famous Passover plague. But actually, this plague isn't a surprise or shouldn't be a surprise to us because everything in this narrative has been building up to this plague. Uh, Have a look at chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, I think Philip took us here last time, but it's worth looking at. 
uh, chapter 4, verse 22. God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So notice what this plague is about. Of course, it's about rescue, but it's far greater than that, isn't it? It's about ownership. It's about Israel being God's firstborn son. Now, you'll know that to be a firstborn son, I'm a firstborn son. Um, my sisters accuse me that I'm the kind of favorite. Uh, I don't think that's true. But first, being a firstborn son in the Jewish world, in the ancient Jewish world, you really were the favorite, or at least meant to be. You received a double inheritance. You were responsible for the family. And notice what God says about his people, where they're his firstborn, his special, his chosen. But Pharaoh, we see, is behaving a bit like a kidnapper. He's taken God's child. And so 11 to 13 of Exodus is about God kind of breaking into the compound, releasing his child and bringing him back safely. So these chapters really are about showing us God's heart for his children. What it means, what it costs God to make us his firstborn. And so I hope this morning that as we look at what God says about his people, that actually we will find ourselves deeply assured that we too in Christ are his people. See, how do we find assurance? Well, first of all, we've got to look for what we're redeemed from. Secondly, we're to look at how we're redeemed. And thirdly, we're to keep looking at our Redeemer. Now, when you um, get to chapters 11 to 13, you realize that actually the problem is actually a lot worse than just Pharaoh. Because this plague's very different to plagues 1 to 9. See, plagues 1 to 9, Philip did a great job of showing us this last week. It, it, they follow a set pattern. You get the promise of a plague. Uh, Moses warns Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, kind of uh, doesn't uh, listen to Moses. The plague comes. Pharaoh begs for uh, some relief. And then Moses often prays and the plague disappears. But plague 10 is very different. Because actually Moses doesn't bring it about. He announces it. But actually it's from someone else. Uh, Who's that person? Well, look at 11 verse 4. Who's bringing this plague? 11 verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Do you notice what he's saying? I, I'm personally going to come to Egypt. The Lord is coming. And in those um, previous nine chapters, God made a distinction between Israel and Egypt Uh, He kind of did it automatically, and so you don't need to turn there. But in chapter 8, verse 22, he says, I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so there'll be no flies there. Or chapter 9, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Or chapter chapter 10, verse 23, uh, about the darkness, he says, the people of Israel had light where they lived. As someone puts it, it's like God's got a kind of um, GPS-guided missile system for these plagues. He doesn't just kind of carpet bomb the plagues. He's able to pinpoint the exact building 
the exact people. But this tenth plague, notice, it's very different, isn't it? Because in this tenth plague, everyone is effective. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 12, just over the page. God says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. See, notice what it says, all the firstborn. Not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelite firstborn. But not just them, also uh, the, the animals as well. Or look at chapter 12, verse 30, uh, just over the page again. Uh, read uh, at the end of verse 30, it says this, For there is not a house where someone was not dead. Now the translation there doesn't quite get the kind of gist, because it's not someone, it's uh, the presence of death. So it's kind of the idea that there wasn't a house where death wasn't present there. See, here's the point. There had to be a death. God was coming. And it was either going to be the firstborn or the lamb, which we're going to come to. See, why this difference between this tenth plague and the other plagues? Well, it's showing us there is a far deeper problem to be solved than just Pharaoh. See, the problem for the Israelites wasn't just their slavery. It wasn't that God could kind of bust in, unlock their chains, and they'd be free to serve him. There was another problem, and that was God himself. Not because God presented himself a problem, but because they couldn't dwell with him as they were. If they were to encounter God, then death would follow. Now, maybe we ask the question, why does there have to be death? I mean, it seems pretty brutal, doesn't it, to to have the death of a firstborn? Uh, Why doesn't God just kind of ignore it or kind of brush it aside? But remember what God said to Adam in the garden. Remember what he said about the tree. He said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, Adam doesn't just drop down as soon as he bites the fruits. The death there is much more subtle. The death means he's going to be cut off from God. He's going to be pushed out of his presence. And so from then on, whenever a human being encounters God, well, death is the natural consequence, unless God goes back on his word. It's why you see many characters in Scripture, the moment they encounter God or encounter something of God, Well, they're terrified because they know death will follow. See, our sin, like Adam's, means that we are not automatically God's firstborn. It's not just that we need liberation and then can kind of live with him. Actually, encountering God is like approaching the sun. If we don't have something to protect us, well, it will consume us. Now, how does this help us with that question I said at the beginning about assuring us that we're God's people, that he is our father, that we're his children? This might seem a very strange way to go about kind of reassuring us. Uh, It makes the problem a lot worse. But actually, it's helpful, I think, because it's showing us there's a real reason for assurance here. It's being honest about the problem. See, there is um, an unhelpful way to assure people of something. Uh, I uh, came across it a few years ago. I had a bit of a a health scare. Uh, I had some heart scans, and um, there was something potentially that came up that would have been life-limiting. I'm absolutely fine now. 
uh, by the way. But um, I, I told people, and uh, they were very, very well-meaning. But almost always, everyone's response was, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure you'll be okay. Now, of course, they were trying to be kind. But it didn't reassure me one bit. Because I thought, you, you haven't seen the problem. You don't know what the problem is, so you don't know whether it'll be okay. Uh, you're just giving me something nice to think about. And there can be a kind of Christian version of that where we say, well, of course God loves you. We're all God's children. I- I'm sure you're not as bad as you think. That's why a lot of our kind of contemporary Christianity, I think, just doesn't cut the mustard because it just feels so lightweight. It doesn't address the problem of the grave. Now, it's true, of course, that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. But we forget often what the second half of that verse says, that we should not perish. Because perishing is our natural state when we encounter God. And so here in the Passover, we see there's no kind of cheap grace, no brushing things under the carpet. God is acknowledging there is a real problem And the problem is death. All of us carry that debt around us. All of us, as God says to Adam, shall surely die. But, wonderfully, there is more to this. Because, secondly, we see how we're redeemed. Uh, Like a wave, this plague sweeps in, uh, destroying everyone or bringing death to everyone. But God provides a wonderful way out. He says to people they're to take a lamb into their house and uh, they take it on the 10th day. On the 14th day, they're to kill it at twilight. Uh, They're all to have roast lamb for dinner and uh, they're to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorposts. Now, um, why this ritual? Well, chapter 12, verse 13 tells us uh, what the point is. Chapter 12, verse 13. God says, this shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You get the point? The Passover is called the Passover because God, when he sees the blood, will pass over the house. Death will not come to it. It's a bit like a kind of ancient vaccine, isn't it? And we're all desperate, aren't we, to get a jab in the arm so we can get out and... um, not be threatened by this horrible virus. Uh, But this blood on the doorframe does something far greater. It protects us. God passes over so that death does not touch the Israelites. See, both face the same danger, don't they? Both Egypt, both Israel, both face death. But actually, here's the way out. The death of a lamb instead instead of the death of the firstborn. Now, I get for modern hearers like us, and perhaps there are some vegetarians as well, uh, we think to ourselves, that just sounds very gruesome, very barbaric, uh, perhaps um, a bit strange even. Why the lamb? Why the blood on the doorframe? Why this whole ritual for everyone? Well, the purpose of this uh, comes in chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, Here we get a clue to why God does it this way. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 7. And this was a real surprise to me when I looked at it. Verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, 
that you may know, remember knowing is the big theme of Exodus, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. See, it's not how I would have put it with the plague. I probably would have said, I'm bringing this plague because you've been so stubborn, Pharaoh, and I'm going to have to do something really serious to release my people. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, so that you may know I make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But here's the thing. What makes the distinction? See, before it's been national identity, hasn't it? Israel were saved from the plagues. Egypt were hit by the plagues. But now, it's entirely different, isn't it? There's only one thing that makes a distinction. Only one thing that means people escape God's judgment. And that's the blood of the Lamb. See, if an Israelite just thought to themselves, well, I'm not going to do anything about this, I'm not going to worry, they too would face the same judgment as Egypt. See, God is showing that he makes distinction on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Now, why this method? Well, of course, it's showing us that that same distinction is made today. Our second reading this morning from Luke uh, chapter 22 uh, records Jesus' final meal with his disciples. And you'll probably see why I've gone there already, because there's obvious parallels with the passage we've had today. Uh, We're told verse 7 of chapter 22. It was the day of the unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And verse 8, Jesus says, uh, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. But the surprising thing in Luke is there is no Passover lamb. There is no sacrifice. It's bread and wine. But of course, the lamb is not absent. He's there in the center of the table. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. In other words, I am that true lamb. I am the one where, for whom uh, my blood protects those who trust in me. And so that we can be distinguished, we can be saved from God's judgment, his demand of death, if we have the blood of Jesus covering us. Uh, Just a couple of examples from the New Testament of this kind of uh, language. Uh, Peter says this, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. You get the point? Jesus is that lamb. He's the one who covers us. Or 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 Uh, Paul's speaking to a church and he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Uh, Don't worry too much about what that means. But here's the point. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, the whole point of this ritual, the whole point of painting the blood on the door frames was to set up for us this distinction that those who have the blood of Christ over them can be saved from this demand of death. It doesn't matter who, didn't matter who the people were in the Passover. It didn't matter how good or bad they were. It didn't matter how religious they were. The only one thing mattered. Only one thing made the distinction. The blood of the lamb. 
And so often in the Christian faith, I think we get mixed up with it's about being better. It's about being upright. It's about being good. It's, and those things will mean that actually I'm able to endure God's judgment. But actually, all of us deserve death. Only one thing matters, the blood of the Lamb. See, how do we know we're part of God's family? How do we know that we're distinct, that we're set apart, that we are able to call him Father? Well, it's not our performance. It's not how we feel from day to day. It's not how much we obey. It's one thing, the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Don Carson on this passage uh, makes some very helpful points. And he he kind of talks about the fact that um, it didn't matter how you felt on that Passover night. Um, It didn't matter whether you were sort of sitting in bed terrified about whether this was going to work, whether the judgment would truly uh, pass over you because of the the blood on the doorframe. Or whether you were a bit more casual and you just thought, well, it's done, God said it, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to have a good night's sleep. See, both are saved. doesn't matter if one of them had the kind of terror and one of them was relaxed. Because it's not our subjective state or how we feel that saves us. It is that objective death of the Lamb. How do we know we're the people of God? How do we know we're safe from the judgment? Well, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Maybe some of us get that, but it can still feel a little remote. It can feel like uh, we're a bit disconnected from that event. But thirdly and finally, we see here that actually uh, this really helps us as we seek to keep assured going forward. See, the question I've asked myself looking at this passage is, who's this Passover for? Whose benefit is this written for? Now, you think to yourself, uh, it was that first generation of Israelites, and of course it was. They were saved. But actually, these chapters aren't written primarily to them. See, most of these chapters actually don't detail the Passover night very much. Actually, they're about how it's going to be celebrated in the years to come. Uh, just uh, take a look at this so you just know I'm not completely plucking this out of the thin air. Uh, chapter 12, verse 14. God says this, This day shall be a memorial day for you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So, you see, it's, it's for future generations. Or verse 24 of chapter 12. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons and daughters forever. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 10, a few pages on. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. You see the point, don't you? This whole event isn't just all kind of one-off for this first generation. It's about helping the generations that follow them be truly assured that they too are God's people, even though they weren't there. See, each year, the Israelites are to sacrifice a lamb. We saw that in Luke 22. And they're to have roast lamb. Why? Because it reminds them that they too are beneficiaries of the blood of the lamb. They're to eat unleavened bread, kind of, I guess, pita bread, 
uh, for seven days after that event. Why? To remind them that they didn't have time for the bread to rise, that they had to make a hasty exodus, and that reminds them that actually it was God's work. And in chapter 13, we see something quite interesting, because chapter 13, we don't get an annual festival, but an ongoing reminder in the redemption of the firstborn. Have a look at this with me. This, I think, is the lesser well-known bit of this whole Passover section. See, look at what it says in 13 verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that opens, uh, first opens, the womb. Every, verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. See, as a child grows up, uh, there to, um, sorry, as a child's born, rather, uh, and you come back from the maternity ward, it's not that you've just got to kind of set up the Moses basket or um, get the kind of changing station ready or kind of write off five years of sleep. Uh, it's actually that you've got to go and redeem. You've got to sacrifice an animal for this child. Now, that seems a very strange thing to do. We sacrifice a lot, but we don't sacrifice animals when our children are born. But the reason given is in chapter 13, verse 14. And when in time your son comes to ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Do you see the point? You pay a price, you redeem the firstborn, Because that's exactly what happened with God's people. They were redeemed to be God's firstborn. As you can imagine, can't you, this child, they grow up and uh, they get talking to some friends in the playground and uh, they try and um, they talk about kind of, oh, you heard about this thing about sacrifice and they kill animals and uh, the child comes home to his mum and he says to him, mum, and uh, she says, yes, and he says, some kids were talking about sacrifice and kind of killing animals when I was born. Did that really happen? And the mum says, well, yes, dear. And the child says, why? And the mum says, well, it's to show us that we are God's firstborn. See, if you were in Egypt, son, you would have died. But actually, God didn't let you die. He provided a lamb. And so we sacrifice this animal when you are born to remind us that we were redeemed with a lamb. But here's the thing, that that ceremony isn't just for the kind of firstborn son's benefit. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 14. It reminds us of when God brought us out of the land of Egypt. So not just this first generation, but actually us, subsequent generations, and not just the firstborn of every family, but all people, all the families. And so you can imagine the younger sister, the younger brother in this family asking the mum, what about us? We didn't get an animal sacrifice for us. But the mum's saying, well, no, that's not the point. The point is a redemption has been made for your brother. And so that reminds us we are all redeemed. We're all God's firstborn. If that's quite confusing, here's the point. You were to look at the redemption of the firstborn and that would assure you that you had been redeemed. How would a young Israelite know that they were truly part of God's family? Well, they would look at this ceremony. 
and they would be reminded. And again, it does seem very strange to us. Why would you do this? I mean, it doesn't seem a very good celebration to have when a child is born. But again, it's pointing us forward, isn't it, to the true child. See, this same reason for assurance is the same reason we have today. See, how do we know we're God's people? How do we know we're redeemed? How do we know we're considered God's firstborn, his special children who will not face judgment? Well, it's because the firstborn of our family has been redeemed. Of course, uh, not literally, but the firstborn of our brothers, Jesus Christ. I noticed something completely new this week uh, for once, uh, just how much Jesus is called the firstborn. Uh, Here's some examples. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Or Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, it wasn't the first time I've read that word, uh, I, but I used to think that just basically meant Jesus was really, really important. But actually, it's saying something far deeper than that, isn't it? He's saying he is the true chosen child. He is God's special child. He's like Israel, his true son. But here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus is. Actually, the whole of his people in him are considered God's firstborn. How do we know that? Well, it's not that Jesus was redeemed. It's that Jesus became the redeemer. See, Jesus, he didn't need to have something offered for him to escape the penalty of death because he is the only one who did not deserve to die. But instead, he gave himself as a sacrificial offering, as a lamb, so that all in him may be considered God's firstborn. See, how do we know? Well, we look to our older brother. We look to Jesus, the firstborn, who has become our redeemer, and through that has redeemed us. Imagine that, go back to that kind of young Jewish family, and imagine like the, um, the daughter grows up a bit, she's a teenager, and she's having a bit of doubt about whether God's for her. And she goes and speaks to her mum, and her mum says, well, you don't have to worry. Remember, we did the redemption for your older brother, and that shows us that we're God's people. And it's similar for us, isn't it? How do we find assurance that we're God's people? Well, we look to the redemption of our older brother, who became our redeemer. See, none of us deserve to be God's people, None of us can escape the penalty of death. All of us deserve to die, as God says to Adam. But we too can be considered God's firstborn. Because in Christ, God's true firstborn has died to redeem us. See, how do we know we're God's people? How do we know we're children of God? Well, we look to what we're redeemed from. We don't underplay the penalty. We recognize it. We hold it up. Secondly, we look at how we're redeemed, not by our merits, not by our status, just one thing, the blood of the Lamb. And how do we keep knowing? Well, we keep looking to our older brother, our firstborn, our redeemer. Uh, One um, old preacher about uh, uh, 
said about this passage that it is the gospel before the gospel. And I love that because in one sense we get the kind of gospel here, don't we, in preview. Um, And maybe we are looking into Christian things or maybe we've um, been part of a church for a number of years and we're just a bit confused about how all the different bits fit together. But actually here is the real foundation of what it means to be a Christian. The real foundation of the faith. One, we deserve judgment. We shall surely die. Secondly, another one dies in our place. And thirdly, by trusting in him, we're covered by his blood. And it's interesting, isn't it? I've often wondered what I would do on that night of the Passover. See, I I guess a lot of us might think, well, we'll put that decision off. Um, Perhaps we think, well, I need to work out the different options. But I guess no one did that, that on that night. When they heard this warning, they painted the blood on the, uh, on the doorpost. And that same urgency actually is the same urgency we find in the gospel, where Jesus says to us that judgment's coming, but by trusting in him, we may be covered. And for us Christians, how do we know we're redeemed? How do we know we're God's people? Because I guess for a lot of us, that will go up and down. And perhaps this pandemic has not been the greatest time for kind of helping us to find our identity in Christ because lots of us have been kind of left to do nothing really. But actually, we don't look to ourselves, do we? We look to the firstborn. Uh, Luther says this, and I've said it a couple of times, for every one look at us, take 10 looks at Christ. I don't know about you, but it is easy, isn't it, to kind of pray our Father and to forget the gravity of what it costs God to redeem us. But here we wonderfully see that all of us face death. He provides the lamb, and that by remembering him, we are included in that family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you so much for the gracious provision of your salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died willingly as our Passover lamb. And we pray, our Father, that you would deepen our grasp and our understanding of what it means to call you Father. We pray this by your Spirit's work in Jesus' name. Amen.